Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Israel continues its ground offensive and troops are now past Gaza City. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken flies to Israel to try to minimize civilian casualties in the war. Congress taking up aid to Israel, but the Republican bill may end up at a dead end. What Democrats are telling us about why they oppose the GOP's approach and is there a bipartisan path forward? The Trump brothers say they're not familiar with their father's financial statements. Testimony given today in the New York civil fraud case. Why did they sign off on documents involving those statements? Some GOP senators turning against their Republican colleague, Senator Tommy Tuberville. They say he's endangering national security. How's Tuberville responding? And FBI agents raid the home of a campaign fundraising manager. It prompted New York City Mayor Eric Adams to cancel his meetings in D.C. Tensions are escalating in the Middle East. Israel and Hamas terrorists continue to have intense battles on the ground. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is headed to Israel to address the dangers to civilians. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. And a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. On Thursday, the Israeli military released footage of more ground operations in the Gaza Strip. Overnight, IDF troops fought against a large number of terrorists who tried to ambush them. At the end of the battles spanning a few hours, including fighting from the ground with air support from aircraft and missile ships, many terrorists were killed. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the Israel Defense Forces have now moved past Gaza City, the largest city in the Gaza Strip. However, Israeli troops may need to be more careful about where they huddle up. Hamas terrorists released a video showing a drone dropping an explosive on what they claim are Israeli troops in Gaza on Wednesday. The IDF continues to attack through the air as well. On Wednesday, the IDF said they've struck over 11,000 Hamas targets. And recently, the IDF has struck Hamas terrorists in refugee camps for three consecutive days, twice in Jabalia refugee camp and striking Burage refugee camp on Thursday. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is now headed to Israel in an effort to help minimize civilian casualties. As democracies, uh, the United States, Israel, other democracies, have a responsibility to do everything possible to protect civilians who may be caught in, in harm's way. And this, again, is a, is, is a crossfire, quite literally, of Hamas's making. This is something that the United States is committed to. I'm not going to get into the, the details here, but it's very much uh, on the agenda. When I see a Palestinian child, a boy, a girl, pulled from the rubble of a collapsed building, that hits me in the gut as much as seeing a child in Israel or anywhere else. Lincoln also said they've been able to get more humanitarian aid into Gaza, about 50 or 60 trucks a day. And humanitarian aid has not been the only thing crossing Gaza's border with Egypt. Also on Thursday, President Biden said this. We've got out today 74 American folks uh, out uh, that are dual citizens. But this Palestinian-American on Thursday said she has not been able to leave Gaza. Um, we finally got the chance to almost leave Gaza. 
This is my fifth attempt. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel is helping to supply food, medicine, and water to Gaza. But as for fuel, he said there's been no decision. Israel says the Hamas terrorist group steals fuel from the Gazan people to support its military operations. Jason Perry, NTD News. More calls for a humanitarian pause in Gaza. The Defense Department echoing the White House. It's all in hopes of getting more stranded foreign nationals out of the region. Here's what General Pat Ryder said earlier today. The DOD focus, again, our focus is on the things that I highlighted at the top, which is uh, deterring a broader conflict, ensuring force protection, and also ensuring that Israel has what it needs to defend itself. During a campaign rally in Minnesota last night, President Biden was interrupted by a heckler calling for a ceasefire. Biden then responded by suggesting a humanitarian pause on Israel's end. The White House has previously warned that a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip would only benefit Hamas. Tonight, House lawmakers just approve aid to Israel, but the Republican-led bill is facing strong opposition from Democrats. NTD's Melina Weiskopf joins us now from Capitol Hill with the latest updates. Melina, how did the vote break down and do you see any path forward for it in the Senate? So, Tiff, that vote just wrapped up just moments ago, and we did see 12 Democrats voting with Republicans to pass it, but not because they necessarily agreed with all of the details in the bill, but because they did want to show solidarity with Israel. The vast majority of Democrats voted against it. Some of those who opposed it said that they didn't want to set a precedent of having to condition foreign aid on needing to also make domestic spending cuts, which in this bill specifically, the $14 billion aid cost of the Israel aid on uh, is offset by an equivalent sum of money being taken from the IRS. Speaker Mike Johnson today doubled down on this position, saying he's not willing to change anytime soon. And Senate leader Chuck Schumer says he's not even willing to let the Senate consider it. Watch this. The hypocrisy here is that by cutting funding to go after tax cheats, he will actually explode the deficit by billions and billions of dollars. What a joke. And if, if Democrats in the Senate or the House or anywhere else, where else want to argue that hiring more IRS agents is more important than standing with Israel in this moment, I'm ready to have that debate. But I, I did not uh, attach that for political purposes, okay? I attached it because, again, we're trying to get back to the principle of fiscal responsibility. So even though it's passed the House, Tiff, it has no path forward in the Senate. The Senate leader, Chuck Schumer, says that he instead is going to work on a bipartisan approach that's very similar to the request that President Biden made that is tying Israel aid to Ukraine aid and aid for uh, Gaza, the humanitarian relief, as well as some money to counter China. Now, while the most Democrats say that they don't want to accept any package that doesn't also include aid for Ukraine, some are also open to passing a standalone Israel package. It's just so long as it's a clean one. Here's what a few Democrats told me tonight heading into that vote. If the, the urgency is aid for Israel right now in the supplemental, give us a clean supplemental bill and I think you'll have a strong bipartisan vote. Um, and again, you know, we've got a problem on our southern border and putting border funding in there is totally appropriate. So guess what? Iran is, is, is profiting and partnering with Russia and that's why it's all connected. And that's why this package has to be connected to send a message to Iran and to Russia. 
Now, I think it is interesting to see the fact that some Democrats do, uh, you know, support adding border security funding to a package. This is also in line with what President Biden requested, although President Biden said that this specific Republican bill that we just saw pass the House is going to be vetoed if it does, in fact, some way make it to the White House, which it won't because the Senate will not take it up. As for a path forward, Tiff, well, we could see a few options to get out of this gridlock. The Senate could just swallow the bad pill and, you know, take an uh, Israel aid package as a standalone one so long as it's clean without any spending cuts attached to it. We could see that approach or we could see them try to tie together this full package with Ukraine aid as well, but also use some border security funding to entice some Republicans to want to pass this sort of bill. So we're looking to see how the House and the Senate work their way out of this gridlock. Tiff. Melina, thank you for that update. Cornell University in New York has canceled classes tomorrow. This after the arrest of 21-year-old junior Patrick Dye. He's accused of posting online messages that included calling for the death of Jewish people and threatening to shoot up a kosher dining hall on campus. The managing editor of the Cornell Daily Sun reacted to the news. Students are extremely disheartened to hear that this is a threat from within our community. Um, the students we spoke to said that Campus as a whole felt off and strange today um, as they're trying to grapple with this news. According to a report by the Cornell Daily Sun, university leaders cited the extraordinary stress on campus as the reason for declaring a community day. The Sun reported increased tensions related to the Israel-Hamas conflict and incidents of anti-Semitic threats. There was also a report of a weapon sighting on campus yesterday. Police searched for a suspect and later called the report unfounded. In an email to campus community members, two university officials called for reflection on how to better create a caring, supportive community. Former President Trump's sons, Don Jr. and Eric, said they know very little about their father's financial statements. They said this repeatedly in their testimonies earlier today. The financial statements are at the heart of the New York civil fraud case against them. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump are not accountants. They said their duties as executive vice presidents don't include working on their father's financial statements. State attorneys asked Donald Jr. about his role in signing off on statements of financial condition. Donald Jr. repeatedly said he relied on the accountants and that he signed the statements after getting confirmation from them. He told reporters this case is truly a scary precedent. I'm apparently guilty uh, of fraud for relying on my accountants to do, wait for it, accounting. I mean, think about that. What, what does that do for literally any other business? You pay experts millions of dollars to be experts. You sign off on what they give you, and you're liable. And by the both brothers were questioned extensively about their knowledge of statements of financial condition. The statements include the values of the senior Trump's properties and ultimately determine his net worth. Attorney General Letitia James claims the brothers were aware of and knowingly participated in a long-running scheme to falsely inflate the company's assets and that the fraudulent values were used to land loans and insurance policies on more favorable terms than they were entitled to. Her expert, Michael McCarty, on Wednesday testified that the banks lost $168 million in interest because of the misrepresentations. 
Oh, and by the way, again, the same supposed victims, because it's a totally victimless thing, are saying, no, we did our own due diligence. We made hundreds of millions of dollars. Judge Arthur Angoran, who was presiding over the trial, stated in a previous order that the banks did make lots of money. But the focus of this trial is on how much more money they could have made if not for the alleged fraud. The judge has already determined that fraud occurred. He now must determine the size of the fine the Trumps are facing. Eric Trump is alleged to have signed several guarantor compliance certificates for his father. And those certificates relied on the financial statements. He testified that he had very little knowledge about those statements. When pressed about a 2013 email with part of a financial statement attached, he conceded he was familiar with them, but said he would not have personally worked on them. The senior Trump took to social media defending his sons and blasting the judge. Leave my children alone, Angoran. You are a disgrace to the legal profession, he said. Donald Jr. completed his testimony without any cross-examination from defense attorneys. Eric Trump will be back on the stand Friday. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Minnesota's Supreme Court is hearing arguments to prevent former President Trump from running for president. Prosecutors are invoking the Constitution's Insurrection Clause. This is one of several lawsuits that have been filed around the country to bar Trump from state ballots. Those in favor say the former president's role in the January 6th Capitol breach at the U.S. Capitol disqualifies him. Trump's lawyers argue that the events were a riot, not an insurrection in the constitutional sense. They add that the former president has never been charged with such a crime. There is no more political question in our constitutional order than who should be president. That's the predominant feature of our national political conversation, and the Constitution itself devotes more words and more provisions to how we decide that question than just about any other. It's for that reason that when parties ask the courts to step into that process and to decide who can or can't be president, the courts overwhelmingly say that's not a decision that should be made in the judiciary, that's a decision that should be made elsewhere. Uh, we've had two citations of supplemental authority in this case just in the last week or so. Those courts actually took different approaches to this political question issue, but they used exactly the same phrase to describe the presidential landscape. Both of those courts said that the weight of authority holds that this is a political question, not justiciable. The Colorado and Minnesota cases are furthest along. One or both could head to the Supreme Court. The nation's highest court has never ruled on the issue. The Navy now has an official leader again. The Senate confirmed her promotion today, despite Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's hold on military promotions. NTD's Arian Pazdar has an update on the situation. The yeas are 95, the nays are 1, and the nomination is confirmed. The Senate on Thursday confirming Admiral Lisa Franchetti to lead the Navy. The Senate also voted to confirm General David Alvin as the Air Force Chief of Staff. This despite Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's hold on military promotions. No matter where you believe it or not, Senator Tuberville, this is doing great damage to our military. Various Republican senators attacked Tuberville on the Senate floor on Wednesday night. That was after the Senate started voting on promotions. And just like he'd been doing since February, Tuberville on Wednesday night said, Mr. President, I object. The objection is heard. Tuberville is protesting a Department of Defense rule, which says the department pays for the abortions of some service members. He says he won't support the military promotions until the rule is abolished. Here's his defense on Wednesday. It's about keeping politics, politics out of the military. 
I did not put it in the military. Joe Biden and Secretary Austin put politics in the military. And it's about the right to life. Every day this continues is a day that Democrats think abortion is more important than the nomination and our military. Tuberville says if the promotions were really important, the department would simply get rid of the abortion rule. The Senate was able to promote the Navy Admiral on Thursday without Tuberville's approval by using a different process. That process handles each promotion separately and takes longer. The White House on Thursday was asked about the situation. Would the president support changing the Senate rules to get around Tuberville's blockade? That's for the Senate to decide. The president wants, as Kareem said, wants the hold lifted. Senate Democrats are now talking about changing the rules so they can go around Tuberville's hold faster. Arian Pastar, NTD News. The House yesterday shot down another attempt to expel Congressman George Santos. The New York lawmaker is facing 23 felony charges, including conspiracy, money laundering and wire fraud. 31 Democrats voted against his removal, while 24 Republicans backed it. The House also rejected a resolution to censure Representative Rashida Tlaib. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced a resolution accusing Tlaib of anti-Semitic activity and sympathizing with terrorist organizations. Greene also accused her of leading an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol during a pro-Palestinian protest last month. 23 Republicans came to Tlaib's defense along with all Democrats. Congressman Chip Roy called the resolution deeply flawed in a post on X. He wrote that it made legally and factually unverified claims, including the claim that she led an insurrection. Coming up, FBI agents raid the home of the chief fundraiser for New York City Mayor Eric Adams. The incident prompted the mayor to cancel scheduled meetings in Washington, D.C giving money to other countries so migrants can stay there. That's part of a new plan from the White House to tackle illegal immigration. A California school district to pay millions to settle sexual abuse claims. Entities spoke to the victims and their attorneys. And parents suing the state of California over vaccination laws. The state has a bill restricting religious exemptions for childhood vaccinations. Stay tuned for that after the break. Welcome back. A last-minute change of plans for New York City's mayor after FBI agents raided the home of his chief campaign fundraiser. Mayor Eric Adams promptly returned to New York after canceling several meetings in Washington, D.C. today. This came as the FBI raided Brianna Suggs' Brooklyn home. The mayor shared this video this morning. We uh, headed to D.C. to meet with uh, our delegation White House to address this real issue of the asylum and migrant issue in our city, and we'll keep you updated as the day goes. According to Sugg's LinkedIn page, she managed fundraising activities for Adams between 2019 and 2021, raising over $18 million for his 2021 campaign. The New York Times reported that she also raised more than $2.5 million for the mayor's 2025 re-election campaign. 
Today's raid prompted the mayor to cancel his morning meetings to, quote, deal with the matter. A public corruption unit reportedly questioned Suggs during the raid. The U.S. has a new strategy to prevent people from crossing the southern border illegally. That is, giving money to other countries where immigrants can stay. NTD's Arian Pastar has the details of that plan. Stopping immigrants from coming to the U.S. illegally by giving money to other countries. That is a new plan the U.S. is expected to announce on Friday. President Biden is set to host leaders from Latin America and the Caribbean at the White House on Friday. That's to discuss economic issues and immigration. And in some cases, the two topics seemingly go together. The U.S. is planning to give money to the Inter-American Development Bank. The bank then uses the money for a financing platform that will serve middle- and high-income countries in Latin America. The hope is to expand economic opportunities in the region so immigrants do not head to the U.S. Now, U.S. officials are presenting this idea in a way that doesn't relate to immigration only. They say these funds are critical to boost the economy and also to bring back the supply chain to the Western Hemisphere. They say this is a crucial step in countering Chinese influence here in the West. And officials named a few areas where the West could compete globally, such as the production of semiconductors and medical supplies. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. A California school district is set to pay millions of dollars to settle sexual abuse claims against one of their staff. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the story. We're here at the Los Angeles Unified School District headquarters where a press conference is held by attorneys and the families of the victims who were sexually abused by a teacher's assistant, Lino Cabrera. The LAUSD will pay $19.9 million to settle claims against Lino Cabrera, who sexually abused 14 children at an elementary school in North Hollywood. Lino Cabrera was able to sexually molest these girls in the classroom with adult supervision present, while other children were able to see the abuse, were able to recognize the effect it was having on their classmates, the teachers whose job it was to protect them said they saw nothing. Attorneys mentioned Cabrera touched the girls in between their thighs and other private parts of their bodies. The girls were all in the fifth grade at the time during the 2018-2019 school year. Seven of them got together. They talked about it. One of them said, he's making me feel uncomfortable. The others chimed in. Um, and they so courageously all together went to the front office and reported what was going on. According to the victim's attorneys, Cabrera was sentenced to eight years in state prison. One of the victims recalled the horrific abuse. <laughs> he hurt us in ways I can't even describe. It does affect us. It affects our personalities, the person we were, the person we were built to be. <laughs> But I can't let him drag me down, and I really hope he does not drag any of the other 13 girls down. <laughs> Mothers of the victim said, No kid should be going through this awful pain. Why? Because it's hard for them. They probably don't have a future anymore because their minds are changed now. I can see it in my daughter. I'm dropping them off to someone who's certified and leaving them to the teachers and the principal, someone that's supposed to protect my child while I'm working, and it didn't happen. 
A superior court judge will host various hearings on November 6th and 7th to approve the distribution of the settlement to the minors involved. Christina Corona, Entity News, Los Angeles. A nonprofit is suing California over a bill that limits religious exemptions for childhood vaccinations. They say it violates the rights of parents to make medical decisions for their children. This comes as the state plans to add the COVID-19 jab to the list of vaccines required to attend a school. Advocates for Faith and Freedom, a nonprofit law firm that aims to protect religious liberty, filed a lawsuit on October 31st against the California Attorney General, Rob Bonta, challenging Senate Bill 277. SB 277, signed by Governor Jerry Brown in 2015 and took effect in 2016, restricts religious exemptions for childhood vaccinations. It eliminated non-medical exemptions from state-mandated immunizations for children entering public or private schools. The bill applies to elementary or secondary schools, daycare centers, and public or private daycares and preschools. In the announcement, Mariah Gondero, vice president of the nonprofit group, said, People of faith should never be discriminated against through legislation. We are standing up for parents of all faith backgrounds who want access to a quality education and medical autonomy over their children. This comes as Governor Gavin Newsom and some lawmakers have been trying to add the COVID-19 shot to the list of vaccines needed to attend school. In October 2021, California became the first state in the nation to mandate COVID-19 vaccines for schools during the pandemic. Coming up, while most Gazans live in poverty, their leaders are billionaires. How did they build up so much wealth while their people suffer? And artificial intelligence may be helping to spread propaganda. A national security analyst has a warning about an AI threat from the Chinese Communist Party. That and more after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. Major breakthrough on the battlefield today. Israeli troops marching past the largest city in the Gaza Strip. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel. He says he hopes to mitigate the dangers to civilians. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill today, House Republicans passed a billion dollars aid package to Israel, which strips funds from the IRS. Democrats are pushing for a bundled package with Ukraine aid. Another day on trial, two of former President Trump's sons distanced themselves from their father's financial statements. The judge overseeing the case is determining who faces what penalty for what he previously ruled were inflated assets. As most Gazans live in abject poverty, some of their leaders are worth billions of dollars. How did the few leaders of Hamas generate so much money for themselves? Entity's Faye Quarter asks the experts. Hamas's leader, Ismail Haniya, is estimated to be worth between 4 and 5 
billion. This according to Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Hamas's deputy chairman is estimated to be worth $3 billion, and Hamas's former leader is estimated to be worth $4 billion. For perspective, 1 million seconds is less than two weeks, while 1 billion seconds is equal to around 32 years. They've gotten to be so rich by effectively fleecing their own people. Middle East expert Gerard Felitti says a major way they do this is through taxes including a 20% tax on smuggled goods. They tax goods and services, just like any government does, and collects that revenue, but basically they use it for themselves instead of for providing services. Reports are, especially in the Middle East, that their leaders live it up. They have extravagant parties, they have extravagant palaces, they have servants. Meanwhile, Financial World estimates that 60% of Palestinians live below the international poverty line of around $2 a day. Aside from taxing their own people and putting much of those taxes directly into their own pockets, Hamas's leaders have other sources of wealth. Iran gives them around $100 million annually, which it moves through to Hamas via shell companies. Qatar, since 2014, has been giving hundreds of millions of dollars to Hamas. There's also a Syrian fund where several billion dollars have been embezzled Hamas has benefited from cryptocurrencies and through charities. Middle East expert Barack Sina says these charities and cryptocurrency funds are constantly being identified and shut down. Hamas then opens new ones elsewhere. Sina says Hamas's leaders use a lot of this money to live luxurious lifestyles in Qatar. Much of the rest of it goes to fighting Israel. Bay Quarter, NTD News. Is the Chinese Communist Party using artificial intelligence to spread pro-Hamas propaganda? We speak with a national security analyst who warns the CCP can use AI to influence and weaken a free society. General Spalding, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you back on the show. Thanks. Great to be back. To begin with all of the conflicts happening around the world right now, there's growing focus on the future of warfare. How do you see AI fitting into all of this? Well, currently, um, the AI that comes out of ByteDance, I think, is a huge problem. We've seen it even recently with the um, Hamas attack of Israel and then the propaganda that's, you know, fighting itself on TikTok. You know, 30% of uh, young kids today get their news from TikTok and get their information from TikTok. And so, you know, and TikTok is a platform that uses AI to gauge the, um, the person's interest in videos, understand their perceptions or behavior patterns, and then serves them up contents that, content that will uh, appeal to them. And some of that content, obviously, today is full of propaganda in support of Hamas, unfortunately. And I think, you know, when you look into the fact that this company is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, and given the fact that you see uh, Xi Jinping um, meeting with Iranians, uh, meeting with uh, the member of the Palestinians that are you know, causing a lot of these problems, you really understand where the Chinese um, allegiance lies, and that is to Iran, and that's to its proxies, one of which is Hamas. To your point, Chairman of the House Select Committee on the CCP, Mike Gallagher, came out with a piece calling TikTok the digital fentanyl of our time. Now, this week, the Biden administration signed a new executive order on AI. Meanwhile, China is actually calling for the world to cooperate and share this technology. What, how do you read that message given China's history with IP theft? 
Well, the fuel of AI is data, and China has, you know, not only all of its data, it has all of our data, and that's what it told President Trump when he went and visited um, during his administration. And they said, look, we're going to be the um, lead in AI because we have everyone's data, and you're going to have to get in line. So I think, you know, <laughs> cooperating with China on AI is a bad mistake for the free world. In fact, I think it's actually important for us to lock down our data so not only can the Chinese not have access to it, nobody should have access to it. I think it's actually a human right that you have the ability to own and control data that is collected about you and data that is owned by you. So I think that's a challenge, you know, in terms of ideology between China's authoritarian system and our democratic or liberal democratic system. You know, privacy Data sovereignty is a key component of that in a modern digital world. And given that China has access to all our data, what is the danger here in terms of AI if China takes the lead? Well, the danger is their ability to manipulate our population, which I already talked about uh, they're able to do. The other danger is the ability to leverage AI in the way it deploys its military. Um, to leverage AI in terms of how it hacks into networks. And really, when you think about it, AI is going to be a very powerful tool in the future, um, even though it is one currently in terms of influence in the future, it's gonna be, you know, when you look at kind of the capabilities today of generative, generative AI like ChatGPT, um, the, the technology is really evolving faster than I think our ability to understand what the implications are the implications can be very bad, though, if it's developed in accordance with the principles of the Chinese Communist Party, which really have no concern for human rights or civil liberties or rule of law, any of the things that we believe uh, in, in the free world. And expanding on that, we know that corporations and big tech companies like Microsoft and Bing, or as you mentioned, ChatGPT, have their own collections of data and are creating their own generative AI and potential there. Is that an area of a threat do you, that you see? Well, you know, as anything, it can be an opportunity and a threat. And I think, you know, right now, um, people are focused on the opportunity, but there's also, there's always uh, people that are focused on how do we use that for ill. You know, one of the things that you've noticed in ChatGPT and other uh, models is this, uh, you know, almost a woke nature of the AI. So there is, um, in, in ways, they're placing biases within the AI. So, you know, some of the challenges really are in regard to if this AI is developed in accordance with, you know, you know, principles that, you know, advocate for breaking up society into groups, um, and, and according to their race, religion, or what have you, then I think it, it is going to be a danger for our society. And I think, you know, when you look at China, the Chinese Communist Party, and you look at uh, other authoritarian regimes, you know, their interest in breaking up our society into groups is really what allows them to have sway over us because we begin to, uh, you know, less emulate the, the society that the founding fathers had envisioned, you know, when they created the Constitution, which is a, a, a unified society that uh, shared values and principles. And I think that's what um, we've gotten away from. And I think, you know, what you're seeing in AI is a lot of these things that we've seen that are bad for society, they actually create division, are being built into the AI. And, and and that's supported by our adversaries. Mm, and General, you brought up the issue of data and our own privacy in terms of that. Is there anything that people can do to protect their privacy at this point? 
Well, I, unfortunately, with the Patriot Act and this focus on you know protecting the homeland from terrorism and then extending that into the domestic population, I think there's this uh, belief, at least by the federal government, that having the ability to have access to your data is, is should be a right of the government. And unfortunately, we haven't done enough to stop that. But if we were to stop stop that, the what what that would look like is people would have access to encryption that the government can't break. And I think you know every American deserves technology which allows them to encrypt their data in a way that the government does not have access to it. That technology exists today. You know, part of the problem is that the government has things like rules within, you know, cellular networks and other, you know, other things that allows them to collect data on you. And I think those are the things that we ought to go back and relook, you know, after what we've seen subsequent to 9-11 and the Patriot Act, you know, the abuses that can come when the government has access to your data. Mm. Well, General Spaulding, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, silenced, erased, and abandoned. Those who sustained injuries from the COVID-19 vaccine are left out in the cold, but they've banded together and are making an impact for the better. And in college basketball, the passing of a legend. We take a look at the career of Hall of Fame coach Bobby Knight when we come back. Welcome back. The lives of many individuals have been completely upended by injuries sustained from the COVID-19 vaccine. It's not just health challenges or financial burdens or feeling like their voices have been silenced, but also feelings of abandonment. But a community that they formed has helped them gain a sense of hope, purpose and belonging, allowing them to move forward and make an impact. NTD's Kevin Hogan brings us more from Port Orange, Florida. It felt like it was dying. I had been abandoned not just by friends, but family. Because if the vaccine injured don't help our fellow vaccine injured, it, we're not going to get the help we need. And that's part of medicine, you know, love and support. Meet Adam Rowland. Adam can barely walk more than 20 yards at a time now. He exercises his lungs regularly to rehabilitate them after suffering blockages in his lung arteries. But therapies, countless supplements, and medications weren't always part of his life, nor was immense pain. If I win the seconds, I'll win the minutes, I'll win the hours, and I'll win this day. It was cloud nine for Adam with fulfillment and financial security after 17 years striving to become a consultant on the PGA Tour. He was physical, had played professional rugby, and became head of medical at Super League in the UK, too. So my life before the vaccine injury was, it was perfect in every way. He took the vaccine to protect others. In 2022, the first dose went in. Then he had instant pain in his limbs, heart arrhythmia, palpitations, and non-epileptic fits. He got the second dose over a month later. Afterwards, he went straight to the cardiac ward with a dangerously fast heart rate. The doctors said it could be fatal. They didn't know the cause and later discharged him only for his health to keep deteriorating. The fits were just ridiculous in bed. I was going um, five days at a time, not sleeping at all. 
Um, felt like I was dying. In May 2022, Adam was diagnosed as vaccine injured. But he and his supporters say the UK couldn't treat him because the necessary tests, treatments, and medications weren't available there to help him heal. He was trying to get biopsies on a muscle degenerating disease suspected to be caused by the vaccine. That was over a year and a half ago. And since then, I've just continued to get downhill. And they just basically abandoned me in my own country. Not being able to stand up, he couldn't cook for himself, nor could his mother with Parkinson's. Goodwill neighbors would bring him food through his bedroom window, but the goodwill spanned the Atlantic, with Heather Hudson, author and mother of a vaccine-injured son, seeing his story on social media and reaching out. We call each other, we text, we, you know, we've become close. How has your relationship with Adam helped you through this tragedy? My relationship with Adam and my relationship with Michelle has helped me to have some semblance of, you know, bonding with other people that are in this. I had been abandoned not just by friends, but family over what has happened. And Michelle and Adam have filled those roles or like aunts and uncles to me. And that's how Michelle Utter, a vaccine-injured former healthcare professional in the U.S., met Adam and decided to bring him to the U.S. for treatment. And when Heather said something about bringing him over, I didn't hesitate. I told her I would do it. Michelle flew to the U.K. She says she was furious Adam was being gaslit over his injury and unable to get treatment. Michelle told Adam she made him a promise she will never break. She's helped him in many ways, like preparing food for him and even preparing for him electrolyte drinks as a remedy. She even went so far as to offer him a shower chair so he could shower with ease. But as you can see, there is no shower chair here because Adam is determined to stand tall throughout his recovery and to help others going through similar situations and to bring this issue to light to help protect future generations. I'll speak to people in Denmark, um, Germany, all over the world, it's just the, the, the gestures that have just kept me going. It's, it really has made me think there is hope that, you know, something like this. There is a lot of people that are, you know, prepared to have good conversations. And, and yeah, it gives me hope that these things hopefully won't happen again. Dr. Eduardo Balbona has been an important figure in the lives of this group providing treatment and bringing awareness to vaccine injuries. How important is the vaccine injured community to recovery? I think it's been hugely important because suddenly they're not alone. All these, all these people here, they're not alone. There's thousands of them and you can go and see that that, that person is just like me. Same thing happened to them. I'm not crazy. There's hope. They're going to get better. Looking for the doctor's office. Michelle brought Adam to New York to see a neurologist to get on a treatment program. As a result, Adam now has a prescription to IVIG, which is a product made from human antibodies administered through a vein. Adam is going back home to the UK, and then he'll return stateside for treatment. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at the new World Series champions. That's right, Tiff. The Texas Rangers beat the Arizona Diamondbacks 5-0 last night to win their first ever World Series title. Texas shortstop Corey Seager was named World Series MVP 
for the second time in his career after hitting three home runs in the five-game set. Now looking forward to next season, what are the odds they'll repeat? Not the greatest actually, according to ESPN Bet. That title goes to Atlanta, who won the 2021 World Series and led all of baseball with 104 wins this past year. The Braves are listed at six and a half to one odds, followed by the LA Dodgers at seven to one, with Texas in third, tied with the Houston Astros at nine to one. And sad news in college basketball as legendary head coach Bobby Knight passed away yesterday at age 83. Nicknamed the General, Knight began his career at Army in 1965 at age 24 before going to Indiana six years later where he returned the Hoosiers to national power status winning three national titles in his 29 seasons. His title-winning 1976 squad went 32-0 and remains the last team to finish the season undefeated. Knight, who retired at Texas Tech with what was then the most wins of all time back in 2008, was also known for his fiery temper, once even famously throwing a chair across the court in protest of a call during a game in 1985. Eventually, he was removed as Indiana's head coach after violating the school's zero-tolerance policy toward him in 2000. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NHL is 12 games on, including one with leading scorer Jack Hughes as his New Jersey Devils play at the Minnesota Wild. And in the NBA, four games are planned featuring number one overall pick Victor Wimbanyama and the San Antonio Spurs, who play at the Phoenix Suns. And finally, in the NFL, the Tennessee Titans play at the Pittsburgh Steelers on Amazon Prime's Thursday Night Football. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.